I want to just mention a few things to you today as you think about uh, what's coming up. Um, so beginning tomorrow night for the five nights this week, Monday through Friday, uh, we have a night of prayer uh, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. And so if you call this church your home, we'd love for you to come and be a part of that. 6.30 to 7.30 starting tomorrow. Um, and then also if you have prayer requests, uh, we'd encourage you to write them down. There's a place in the floor that you can write them down, put them in a basket, and then we'll pray over them this week. We'll place them on the altar and people will pray over them. Um, and so we just want to be a people who will pray for one another. Also want to mention if you're a guy, tonight, 8 o'clock, we hope we'll see you here uh, in the gym. And uh, we're going to do a study that begins tonight, 8 p.m. And so hopefully you'll make that a part of what you do. And we hope to see you tonight for that. I um, want to just mention as we're beginning to this conversation today, I was thinking about how often we're influenced by other people. And some of us are like, no, I'm never influenced by others. I'm just my own person. But you look like everybody, other, everybody else who says the same thing, right? Like we're all influenced by someone. The question for you and I is, who or what are we allowing to influence us? Who or what do we choose to allow influence? Is it like passive, like we haven't really thought about it? It just happens over time, we didn't even realize it. Or are we intentional about what is influencing us? So yesterday, um, I went to the Notre Dame football game. A friend had a ticket, invited me and took me with him. And um, I sat in the middle of the Marshall section, though. It's the bad part of the ticket, right? I don't know if he had to pay for him or not. I hope not. Um, so we sat in the middle of the Marshall section, you know, Marshall Thundering Herd, um, sat in the middle, Notre Dame fan, wearing my Notre Dame shirt. I mean, as I, we got to campus, walked through campus, we went to the grotto, we prayed for his, his, his family Roman Catholics, we prayed together at the grotto for his family and some family not doing well, I mean, it was kind of cool. Uh, the band goes through, walked through the cathedral, which is beautiful, uh, walked around campus, just great experience, and then the game started. Um, <laughs> thank you. Joe Porter said to me this morning, he said, hey, um, your eyes don't look too bad from all the crying you were doing last night. Um, so I watched the game in the middle of the Marshall section, but I was not influenced by the people from Marshall. Maybe I should have joined them as a fan because they would have been more fun to be a Marshall fan yesterday than an Irish fan. Um, right? Football started. And so why am I starting the football story about who's influenced you? Because I was not influenced by the thundering herd but it was painful to sit near them, I will tell you that. Um, in fact, one lady actually apologized to me for another fan who was giving me so much grief. She apologized for him because he was over the line. But that's neither here nor there. But my question is, what influences us? What are the things we allow to influence us? My question is this, what might happen if we decide we're gonna live in such a way that Jesus, above all else, influences us? What if we decided we're going to live in such a way that Jesus becomes the greatest influence of our life, right? If you're here today, at some level, you're wrestling with whether you want to allow that to be true in your life or not, or you've already decided that that's going to be true and you're going to live following after Jesus and you want him to be the greatest influence of your life, right? I'm not talking about influencers like on social media, like that's a whole other conversation. We don't have time for that today. Be glad to talk about it sometime if you want. That's a whole new way to make money, whatever. Um, Hopefully that's not what influences you the most, but hopefully it's Jesus. And you go, what might that look like, right? It's football season starts today if you watch the NFL. So I'm going to talk about Derek Carr, the quarterback for the Las Vegas Raiders for just a few minutes. 
If you're like, who is Derek Carr? I just told you he's the quarterback for the Las Vegas Raiders. If you don't know that, you obviously don't watch football, and I'm sorry that you probably have better use of your time on Sunday afternoon than some of us. However, Derek Carr's story is pretty cool, right? His brother was the number one draft pick, I think it was 2000 or 2001, by the Houston Texans, the number one pick in the NFL draft. Played about 10 or 12 seasons in the NFL, uh, but underwhelming performance for that time. He was the great hope of the Houston Texans, but didn't really play that great. Now, in fairness to David Carr, Derek's brother, the one that was drafted years ago, you were also on a horrible team that had no offensive line. I don't think anyone could have been good. Sorry, Tom Brady could have been their quarterback, and he still would have been awful, right? It didn't matter who it was. So, Derek Carr's brother is drafted in the NFL, but he's not drafted until the second round. And it wasn't because he had second-round grades. It was because they were worried that he'd be like his brother. And so people didn't want to take a chance on him because they thought he might be like his brother. And so he's drafted in the second round, um, has a great first few years, and then this kind of cool thing happens. He has a good enough career. The Las Vegas Raiders, I think they were still in Oakland at that time. I don't really know. Right? The Raiders offered him a contract extension. Not just any contract extension, a contract extension worth $125 million. At the time that Derek Carr signed this contract, it was the largest contract in NFL history. It lasted like a day or two, but it was the largest contract in NFL history. And so on June 22nd, 2017, he signed this contract. They had a press conference. Right Here are the numbers in case you're curious. There was $40 million guaranteed, $70 million in total guarantees, and a $12.5 million signing bonus. And so at the press conference, they said, Derek, you are now obviously a rich man. What are you going to do with your money? First answer. Love this answer. Didn't even know this until the other day. I knew the second part of the answer. But first answer, he goes, I'm going to go buy a sandwich at Chick-fil-A. Great answer. Dude's hungry. I get it. But it's what he said next that has struck me for years now. When I read this years ago, here's what he said, and I'm quoting. First thing I will do is pay my tithe, like I have since I was in college. See, Derek Carr became a Christian when he was in college. And so here's what he says. First thing I'll do is I'll pay my tithe since I have when I was in college. Getting $700 on a scholarship check, that won't change. I'll do that. Because I'll say I'll probably get my wife something nice, even though she begs me not to. She still gets coupons. Ever since I've known her, she finds coupons and she gets online trying to find discounts and all those things. None of that is going to change. The exciting thing for me, money-wise, honestly, is that this money is going to help a lot of people. I'm very thankful to have it in our hands because it's going to help people not only in this country, but in a lot of countries around the world. That's what's exciting to me. I love this story because when Derek Carr was making nothing, he still gave a tithe, 10% of his income to his local church. I also thought on this day his local pastor and church board was pretty excited too, right? Changed the budget dramatically. But on $700, he gave his 10%. And he did the same thing when he made $125 million. See, here's what's true. We can choose to be shaped by the world around us, 
We can choose to be shaped by Jesus. Derek Carr's decision wasn't on June 22nd, 2017, when he signed a contract. His decision was a college student living on $700 married and living on $700 a month. That's when he made that decision. Not on June 22nd, 2017. Years before, when he didn't have much. You go, why would you talk about that? Because the decisions we make and the moments when it seems like it's irrelevant, right? On 70 bucks, like today's not really about money, but when I was like 13, 14, I started cutting grass, started giving 10% of my income then and just have kept doing it. It's not that hard if you've done it when you're young. But Derek Carr made a decision when he didn't have much that he was going to do this. Why? Because he knew there'd be a moment of adversity or a moment of difficulty or a moment when he'd have something different. And so in the adversity, in those moments, he made the tough decision even then. And then when it wasn't as hard later on, he just chose to embrace that. Because we make the decisions years before that are going to impact what happens later. We've already decided how we're going to respond, whether we realize it or not. And this is the backdrop for us to continue the conversation about the book of Revelation. So, book of Revelation written by a guy named John. John writes this book. By the way, there are in the Welcome Center, um, if you're like, this is a weird topic, this book's kind of weird, I don't understand everything they're saying, we actually have handouts weekly that you can grab, right? So we have one that kind of gives you a general overview, and then one for each of the letters each week, and they're in the foyer, you can grab them when you leave. Uh, We'll print more if we ever run out, be a great problem, Um, but they're available, so you know that is there. But we understand this book in this kind of unique way, that it's written from the perspective of the divine in the first century to particular churches, seven particular churches in Asia. And so the first seven weeks of this series, we're going to talk about each of these churches. And it's written to them in such a way to say, hey, I know what's going on in the world around you, but let me speak to you in such a way that you can know how you're going to live when adversity comes, because adversity will come in your life. And if you will choose to follow Jesus in these moments, when those difficult days come, because they will come, you'll know how to respond like their car. When you have no money or you have lots of money or whatever it is in between, you'll know how to respond because you've already decided how you're going to live and what is most important. And so each of these letters is written to the angel or the spirit of a church, right? We talked about this last week. Um, And and the idea of this is this, that every church, every, every church has a unique spirit of its people, an angel, if you will. And so the letters are written to the specific angel of a church. And like, that's a weird thing. We don't mean like floating disembodied thing, but we mean like when you go into a place, right? We've all probably done this. You've gone into a place and you either feel welcomed or not welcomed. You've gone into a place and maybe like a few of us experienced moments where we've gone to a place where like, this feels like oppressive and dark and... Not good, like evil even, right? We've been in those places where you go, I I can't articulate it, but it just feels this way. And so the writer of Revelation is writing to the spirit of a people. Each local church has their own kind of spirit, if you will, the angel of that church. And so it's it's created by the collective unity of the whole. Not it doesn't exist apart from the church, but it's a part of the church, no less. And so each church, the letter is written to, to the angel of that church. So last week, the letter was written to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And the challenge for the church in Ephesus was they had forgotten their first love. They were kind of driven by a spirit in which they were keeping the boundaries of like what was right or wrong. We, we told a joke about how I, I was trying to, I was talking with someone this morning and, and I kind of said this way, I guess I would describe it as this kind of church. 
Uh, we're not this kind of church, so it makes us look better in, in my own mind, right? Um, be like the church maybe you grew up in, where if you're not wearing a suit and tie, if you're a guy, and you're not wearing a dress, um, you're not really welcomed, and we're not, like, we're really good on the outside, we look really good, but our hearts are kind of hard. I'm not saying, by the way, I'm, I want to be clear, I'm not saying if you wear a suit and tie, that's great. Um, and if you wear a dress, cool. Like, those are not bad things, but my point is we worry so much about our outward appearance that our hearts aren't right. That's the temptation of the church in Ephesus. And so they had this spirit, it was kind of defining of their church. They were really good about what they believed, but it was here, it hadn't become here or how they lived. That was the challenge to the church at Ephesus. And so we, when talking about how do we understand the book of Revelation in general, right? Um, I think this is helpful um, we, we would say that Revelation is what we'd call apocalyptic literature. And so that doesn't mean like some really weird thing for us, like, ooh, it's gonna, there's going to be all these apocalypses. No, it's singular, not plural, singular. Uh, apocalypse is the word, is the Greek word. And so here's actually what, what we, how we define that. Apocalyptic literature is not to reveal the future, but to expose the present. Not to reveal the future, but to expose the present, right? When we talk about prophetic words all throughout the scriptures, they are truth-telling, not future-telling. And that matters as we read the book of Revelation because the first century church understood this book. It made sense to them. You're like, well, it doesn't make sense to me. I get it. We also are 21 centuries removed. In fact, the earliest known commentary in this book was a guy named uh, Victorinus who wrote it in 200 AD, and it was written in such a way that, hey, here's what this is saying. And so all throughout this, this book, we'll see that they'll reference Babylon. Babylon is Rome, or the goddess of Roma. Right? This idea that it's a culture, this empire that exists in the world around us. And so how do we then live as God's faithful people when we live in an empire that doesn't seek well, it's an empire. It just wants power and money. So how do we live as God's unique people in the midst of that? And so John the Revelator sent these letters to the churches, and here's what he began to find, is that each of these churches is to be a light to their community, a lampstand, if you will. In each of the churches, the angel of the church can be transformed. This is a cool part of this letter, right? Each of these churches... Um, of the seven, two of them are good. Like, in other words, like, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Keep it up. And five of them, uh, if you keep going the direction you're going, I'm not going to call you a church anymore. I'm going to remove your lampstand, and you're not going to be a light to the world anymore. And so last week, that was one of those. But this week, the church in Smyrna is a church that is one of the positive two of the seven letters. In other words, like, it's this idea that, hey, um, you guys are living faithfully in a world that is not faithful to me. You're choosing to be my unique people in a world that is broken and oppressive and a place in which people are not living as I'm calling you to live, but you guys are doing it. Keep up the good work. And so one of the cool things that the writer of Revelation does is each of these seven letters, he references unique things about those particular communities, those particular cities. And so Smyrna is no different. Smyrna was a very ancient city, right? It was a city that... Uh, that Back in the day, it was large, but today it's the city of Izmir in Turkey, and it's two and a half million people today. Up until about the 1970s, half of Izmir, half of Smyrna, was still Christian. So even now, the church is thriving in Smyrna. And of the churches, it's one of the few that that's true of here. 
So I had this really cool kind of harbor. It was known as the glory of Asia. It had this kind of unique thing that they could, during times of war, enclose their harbor so that other ships couldn't get in. Like they, they were, had this kind of military might in that way. But one of the fascinating things about Smyrna is it became the first place, really, in the Roman Empire to deify the goddess of Rome and create worship of Caesar, of Rome itself. So they created this, and so it became, they, they when like, civil wars were happening, they had this choice to choose Carthage or Rome. They picked Rome. They had this tendency to pick the right one, right? They picked the winning side often. That's what they were really good at. And so there was a street in Smyrna. It was called Golden Street. All right, we're going to talk about streets of gold. Just picture that, right? And on this particular street were several temples to the gods, of ancient Rome and Greece. Smyrna was wealthy. Those people were loaded. It was a community in which wealth was not a problem. It was in the middle of all these trade routes. And it was known as the city that died, yet lives. It had kind of all been destroyed. And then Rome came in. Rome, as their savior, rebuilt the city, and the city was resurrected. And so what would happen? How could this city, how could they not worship the goddess of Rome? How could they not worship Rome? Business was thriving. Pirates were no longer messing up their harbor. Mail was delivered, right? Everything was working out how they hoped. And so one of the things that if you were a citizen of Smyrna that you would have to do is you would have to burn a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Not much. But the problem was, if you were a follower of Jesus, you believed that only Jesus was Lord. So the Jews had worked out this deal, and they didn't have to do that, but only the Jews didn't have to do that. It didn't include this new sect of religion that was eventually known as the followers of Jesus or the followers of the way. And so it's this background that we begin to see. What do we do with this? How do the Christians stay faithful in a place in which they are not welcomed? How do they stay faithful over and over and over again? And so what we begin to see is this, right? I'm going to just read this. This might be helpful for us to think about the people of Smyrna. If a person in modern-day America is held in suspicion for not participating in a routine act of allegiance to the state, which is the burning of the incense, How much more would a first century city like Smyrna, where Rome was highly treasured as the great benefactor in the city's rebirth, hold in suspicion those who refused to participate in the ceremonies of emperor worship? So there was this people. Why would you live this way? And so here's what we find in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write... These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, 
devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This letter begins with a reminder that let me remind you who is the one who is first and last. It's Jesus. And then this particular letter says, hey, um, you know the city of Smyrna, let's contrast the wealth of the city, which is great, with the poverty of the Christians there. You see, here's the reality for Christians in Smyrna. Their faith costs them something. It costs them security in two ways. Financially, and literally, it costs them security personally. They're persecuted dramatically. It cost them, some of them, even their life. Right? Polycarp is the bishop of Smyrna. He's, uh, he's the first recorded martyr or person who was killed for their faith. Right? Martyr actually just means witness. He was the first witness of Jesus outside the New Testament that was recorded as having been killed for their faith. So Polycarp, this bishop, he's 86 years old. He's taken to the Colosseum there. He's brought before those who are in power. They say, Polycarp, if you will just renounce your religion, if you will renounce your faith, if you just burn this incense, if you will just say, Caesar is Lord, you will not have to suffer any longer. Polycarp, it is not that big a deal. You know it's not real. Just say, Caesar is Lord. And Polycarp responds, 86 years I have served my Lord, and I will not renounce my faith even And they burn Polycarp at the stake. He'll just say these words. He'll just be willing to do this. He'll just, just a little bit compromise. Then you'll fit in this city of great wealth, these people. But Polycarp wouldn't do it. But what does the writer say? He says this, that you will be resurrected, you'll be made new, you'll have new life, right? This Smyrna may have been resurrected, this city may have been resurrected, but, but even today, it's moved from its original location, it's still the same city, but it has moved upriver a little bit. But if you'll come to know Jesus in such a way that you'll stay faithful to him, that you won't burn the incense, you won't bow to this way, that what you might find is this, that you will be resurrected as well. You'll know as what Jesus says, you'll have life that leads to life. And then the writer says this, like, for 10 days. Like, well, does that mean, like, the idea that just a short period of time, because that was the Greek kind of phrase for that? Yeah, very very likely. Or, um, either or, is about the amount of time from the time you'd be arrested and imprisoned to executed. Are you and I this faithful? Of God's great faithfulness, but are you and I this faithful? If they're going to stroll you in and string you up and say, hey, just say Caesar is Lord, or else we're going to kill you or maybe your family, 
We're going to feed you the lions. We're going to light you on fire. We're going we're gonna to do these things. Oh, you know, here's the Lord. Sorry, Jesus. So here's what's good about the church in Smyrna. Obviously, there's lots of good about the church in Smyrna. Is that when they were persecuted and all these kind of things happened, they stayed faithful in the middle of it. And here's what we want to recognize, that they are not forgotten, and God knows what they're going through. In the middle of their persecution, in the middle of their suffering, God is still present, right? I love two particular passages, Psalm 120, verse 1, and then Psalm 34. Those are two of my favorites when you're going through like difficult or dark days. I love those two passages because they remind us that in the middle of our distress, God is faithful, that if we will stay righteous in right relationship with him, that he is present in the midst of our suffering. God knows what they're going through and he promises his presence. He doesn't promise to save them from it. Polycarp was faithful and he was burned alive. Right? What else is good about this people? God knows their poverty, even their destitution, right? God is not ignorant about what you and I are going through. He understands where we struggle. And so even this place of great wealth, the Christians were poor, literally poor. And God knows when people talk badly about you, when they slander you. And he wants to remind you and I that he knows your character. He knows who we are. The Jews were given this freedom to not have to participate, but the Jews were so worried in that particular place in that particular time that they, Christians might, might bump them out, that the Jews were sometimes ones yelling loudest for those um, to be executed. Why? Because they were living, weren't living in tension that God calls us to live in, but they had bought into the polarization that's either them or us. And that was what happened in the city of Smyrna. So let's be a little hypothetical here, right? We talk about each week the good, the bad of each church. So Smyrna doesn't really have anything bad, but let's just talk about the community itself. And, be, uh, and so what happened is, right, they twist the character of God. The Jews in that community twist the character of God to be something other than who God actually was. And it brought about destruction, right? The bad, like honestly, yeah, facing persecution and dying for your faith does sound kind of bad. I'm not really one to sign up for it. It could happen. I'm not hoping for it, but that sounds like a bad day. But what if, what if we thought about Smyrna as a whole and we kind of use that and pretended as if there was a church there that wasn't faithful? How, what kind of unfaithfulness would that church live out? And so we would say it this way, right? It'd be a spirit of consumerism in a city that bought and sold everything. I know it's hard for us to think about a wealthy culture where people buy lots of stuff and it shows up on your doorstep. That's hard for us to think about as you see Amazon trucks going everywhere. Hard to picture for us. In fact, I, I should have printed the excerpt for you, but Scott Daniels in his book talks about how what we looked at, what we think about that. The commodification of faith. We make it something we buy and purchase, right? Like, have you ever gone into, and I gotta be careful because one of my best friends his parents, I guess they still kind of own a Christian bookstore. Um, and you go in there, and there's not a lot of books. There's all kinds of trinkets. Right? You can, you can get, like, Holy Trinity, whatever. You can get stuff to take with you. You can buy little stuff that's, um, like, they used to have these, like, testaments. They were literally mints with, like, scripture verses on there. I mean, like, we, right, we can commodify it. If we can sell it, we're going to sell it. So we put all kinds of weird stuff on this stuff, like it's Christianese, like it's just weird. I don't know. It is. 
We commodify things. We make them things we purchase. So in other words, you can buy your faith. And what we would say to this is this idea of that. That Christianity is a danger. We make it a commodity. We begin to talk about like church shopping. Mm, they don't offer what I want there, but maybe they will over there. And so we go, and, all right, and I know that's dangerous for a pastor to say, right? I, I, I get that. Some of you may be like, well, that's kind of what I'm doing today. Sorry, um, we'd love to have you. Truly we would, but, but like we're, we're shopping here. Like, well, I can get that there. And so it becomes, our faith becomes a commodity. We buy and sell and meets my need. Rather than a community, in which I wrestle through difficult things. They know me my best and my worst. Right? We, we find that that begins to happen over and over again. And so the danger to a church in a place like Smyrna or Muskegon will be if it just becomes for us one more thing I buy and sell and meets my need. So what do we do? How do we live then as a people of the church? The angel of the church, what are we called to do? Well, the same thing that the church in Smyrna did, to just stay faithful. And then he promises this crown of life. And the reason that's so cool for a city like Smyrna, that if you were to come into the harbor in Smyrna, from the water, looking at the city, you could see the city itself, and other people would say it looked like there was a crown of Smyrna. And so what does Jesus offer? Right? He offers you the crown of life. In a city in which it had all the prosperity, you see all that it has to offer, you get to see the skyline, which is the crown of Smyrna, this glorious crown. What if we give you one that will last for eternity? And that's what Jesus offers in this letter. And so we, if we see from just the perspective of the world in which we live, the Christians in Smyrna were radically poor. But if we see from the perspective of the divine, the Christians in Smyrna had more wealth than they knew what to do with. And over and over again, we see in these seven letters, these words, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. It's like I said, hypothetically, Smyrna's not good. And they just kept consuming stuff over and over and over again. It leads to a question for you and I, what are we consuming? Because here's what's true. What we consume consumes us. What we consume consumes us. If we watch four or five or listen to four or five hours of news every day, probably going to be kind of bitter people. Watch the news. It's depressing. It's not all of life, by the way. It's not even real life for most people. If you consume sports all day, then that's what's going to define us, right? Depending on what we consume all the time, it will consume us. It will become like that which we consume. And so the challenge for us is what are we tempted to consume over and over again? Are we tempted to not even think about it? Are we tempted to not care, right? Are we, what, we might ask the question as we think about Smyrna, which is a good church. What is a good church, right? Here's a hint for us. It's even in your notes. Um, it's not a church that gives little or that gives much and requires little. It's the opposite of that. It's honestly a church that doesn't give much and requires everything. Are we faithful in that kind of way? Scripture says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give your life as your victor's crown. So what are in the areas of our life, if we're honest, right? The Christians in Smyrna were, were told, do not be afraid. What are the areas of our life in which we find ourselves fearful? 
What are the areas of our life, if we're honest with ourselves, right? We find ourselves caught up in consuming all kinds of things. The question for you and I is, have we given our whole life? If we're Polycarp, or right before the magistrates of the city, and they said, hey, if you'll just do this little thing, you'll be fine. Would we do it? Or would we stay faithful? Right? The church is listed as a lampstand in John's revelation. A light. See, right? So the angel of the church says to the church, you are to be a light in the world. You are to be the very presence of Christ. See, the challenge for us is we can't just wake up one day and decide, you know, I want to live for Jesus in everything I do. And I'm going to start that right this moment. Now, you can start right this moment. That's not true. That's not a bad thing. But the idea that we're going to be faithful no matter what comes, right? If we're like Derek Carr and we get our $125 million, uh, probably not going to happen for you or me. But um, maybe, maybe for you, I don't know. But not for me. But, but if you get that, are you going to be faithful in your generosity? Oh, when I get the $125 million, then I will give God my tithe but not before that. God, I I will be faithful when you do this. Right, again, back to the question we started with, what shapes us, what influences us? We are actively or passively shaped by things all the time. We're actively or passively shaped by things all the time. Active is like the idea that I'm going to be intentional, right? Like I want to spend more time in, in silence and solitude and in prayer, and in reading the scriptures, and in conversation, and study with others. I want to model generosity and practice generosity, so I'm going to actively be shaped by these things, so I'll become more and more like this. Passively is going, well, I prayed a prayer at one point, and so I just hope over time, God, will you just osmosis, like, will you, I don't want to do anything, but will you make me who you want me to be, but I'm not going to do anything. And we're shocked when someday, when hard things come, we're like, ooh, I'm going to burn that incense we're passive and we think it's just going to happen and what we don't realize is we are shaped by things all around us all of the time Christians were not called Christians for the longest of times by the way in fact in the Bible it's only used three times and every time it's used it was because it was an insult from the community at large they were known as followers of the way or followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus or apprentices, if you will. Even if you go to like New York today, even now, and you see Jewish disciples of a rabbi, they literally follow them in a line behind them. They go with them wherever they go. If that rabbi goes to the bathroom, they go in the bathroom as well, probably not in the stall, but they do go in the bathroom with them. Right? They go wherever they go. And the greatest compliment you can ever give a disciple is, man, you're obviously a disciple of such and such rabbi. It's so obvious. You sound like them, right? The goal was to sound like, look like, act like, talk like, be like, to become your rabbi. What's so radical to the first century church that honestly we probably don't look nearly enough like is their goal was to be so like Jesus. They wanted people to confuse them with him. I gotta be honest with you, I don't think anybody's confusing me with Jesus. And that's probably a problem. 
what might happen. See, here's the reality. We can't just decide when the hard things come that we're going to be like Jesus. We do that now. We do that with every little decision we make. We do that with what consumes us and what we consume and who we become. We can't become in a moment what it takes a lifetime to become. Polycarp in his 86 years. Smyrna, the city of wealth. The church stayed faithful and was not wooed by the culture around them, but they were more concerned about living like Jesus. What might happen if you and I walk daily with him? Or we're going to say, God, you can have parts of me, but not all of me. God, I want to look kind of like you. I want to be your pseudo-disciple. I want to follow you in the ways I want to follow you, but when you call me to hard things, I'm going to do my own thing. When you call me to surrender everything, mm, I I don't really like how that sounds. I'm just not going to do that part. But what might happen if you and I were so faithful, so fully surrendered, so all in to following Jesus that we might find the crown that he promises, this resurrected life, it might be ours here in this moment. And so here's my challenge and my invitation. I believe in a God who is so gracious that wherever we are in this moment, we can go, God, I'm sorry. I have not, I've not followed you who I want. I want, to, I want people to confuse me with you. He's going, okay, let's do this. Let's start today. Or maybe you're going, man, I, is this real? Maybe you're going, God, I, I realize there's some things I'm consuming in my life that I'm consuming at levels that probably aren't healthy. For the most part, I leave those vague on purpose because you probably know what they are. But what might happen if you and I, what might happen? What might happen in our communities, in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces? What, what might happen if we begin to consume the things of God, the things of Christ? What if they became what we're all consuming to us? What we might become is actual followers of Jesus. And we might transform our communities, much like this little ragtag group of people in Smyrna who was persecuted, brought to a thriving church in a place where the church has never thrived before. What might happen if you and I were so consumed with that, we might become like him? To the angel of the church at Connection Point, I say this. Will you be faithful? Will we We choose to consume the very presence of God and allow his spirit to shape us. That is the invitation for you and I today. We pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy that you come to us where we are as we are. You desire to so transform us that we would look and sound and look and become more like you. So, Father, today we ask that you might help us to be like Polycarp, to be so faithful that no matter what's going on around us, it's apparent that we will choose you over and over again. So may we make all the little decisions today so that when the difficult days come, we know whose we are. And so help us to look more like you, to follow you more closely. May we become disciples of Jesus, not just people who say they're Christian. But may we live as people so committed to following after you 
that over time, as we begin to be changed and transformed, as your spirit works in and through us, that people might even begin to see you in us in ways we never thought possible. And so, Father, we ask, we'll be so defined by your love that we look like you more and more. And so today, Father, we ask that you might help us to be the kind of people who produce an angel in our community that really is a light to the world. And so may you do the work in each of us so that we become more and more your unique people. And we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name.